The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Tonight, though, we want to address this issue about Christ and culture. And before we do anything, we need to define what we're talking about here. Culture, of course, means all kinds of different things in our common vocabulary today. It could describe your cultural background, your ethnic makeup, your values that you've been taught from your own ethnic identity, culture. Or culture could talk about things that we enjoy in the world today. Art, literature, film, oftentimes is described as cultural activities, right? Especially living in New York right now, it's a big thing to take part of the culture of the city. And it's not just the arts also, it could be things like food, entertainment. All of these things are part of what it means to describe culture. But I actually want to give it a broader definition as we start out tonight. I want to talk about culture in comparison to what I call and what other theologians have called the sacred. The culture versus what is sacred. And the distinction I'm making here is to describe, particularly for Christians, well, really exclusively for Christians, the way in which we look at the world and how we interact in the world, and how oftentimes we can step back and divide things within the category of that which is sacred and that which is part of the culture. Okay? Now, please don't mistake in this dichotomy from the beginning. It is not to imply that culture is somehow evil and the sacred is somehow good. Okay? But we'll talk more about what that means. But as a general definition, that which is sacred, we will say, is that which is devoted exclusively for the purpose of worshiping God. That which is devoted exclusively for the purpose of worshiping God or the purpose of glorifying God specifically through worship. And here I'm not talking about just general things that we do, of course, that we're supposed to do all things to the glory of God, but specifically worship being that which is given not just to you individually, but to that which Christians do communally, that which the church is given and that which the church is assigned, or we could say the church is charged to do, that the rest of the world doesn't. That all of your activities in the rest of the world are different than the worship of God that you participate in within the church. Okay? So let's start with that as just two broad definitions here about Christ and culture and instead, let's talk about the sacred and that which is cultural. Okay? Now, the purpose of, of this lecture, though, is not to give you a theological, systematic theological, or an exegetical, open your Bibles and let's look at this. You can see the title, right? Historical look. That's what I do, history. And we want to look and see what history has to teach us and understand this issue of the sacred and the cultural. 
Because for a lot of Christians, I think, particularly here in America, it's really that issue in which how, how are we as Christians supposed to live in the cultural, or if I can use another word, the secular world around us? How do we address issues in the world as a Christian? How do we take Christ into those places in the world that you and I interact with? And it reaches levels from politics to art to education to every walk of life. What does it mean to understand Christ and culture and the relationship there? Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Concrete examples of things that we're dealing with today. Many of you read the news, watch the, watch the television, all the things that are going around here in America, earlier debates on whether it's proper to have the Ten Commandments posted in a courtroom, civil courtroom. Ten Commandments in a courtroom. How are we Christians supposed to respond to that? How about public prayer, prayers in public schools? How are Christians supposed to respond to that? Because these are aspects in which we live our daily lives in the world, yet at the same time profess Christ. Should we support these things? Should we not support these things? Big topic today, right? President Bush has just nominated another Supreme Court justice. How are we supposed to view that? How do we as Christians support or not support, or how should we react? What do you tell your non-Christian friends around you who say, well, are you in favor of that or not? Are you in favor of this appointment or not? How do you interact on the political level? And what we've seen really with Christians is a number of interesting reactions, right? Some Christians look at culture as a way or something to be conquered. Yes, we need to be active. We need to be out there. We need to take it over as Christians. We want to make sure that in every office, from the president all the way down, that we have Christians in every single office civic office, that culture is something to be conquered, something to be taken over. Other Christians have said, well, no, actually, we shouldn't do that. We as Christians should focus just on personal evangelism. All that other stuff, don't worry about it. Just as a Christian, in your daily life, just make sure that your focus is always on personal evangelism. Don't worry about these other political issues. Don't worry about these other cultural issues. Just focus on evangelism. Others, though, have said, well, the best way to do it is to just kind of form your own little Christian subculture. Right? Have your own little sub- Christian subculture, because once you get out there and you touch these other parts of culture, wow, you open yourself up to all kinds of different things. So what you should do is you should form these little Christian subcultures and stay within them yourself. If you're a musician, don't go to a secular record label. Find a Christian record label. Stay within the Christian community. Just do your music all within this Christian context. If you're an artist, no, no, no. Don't go displaying your art in those galleries out there. No, no, just just put them in Christian galleries for other Christians to look at. And some say, well, let's let's just keep that so separate that we don't want to involve ourselves in cultural things at all. Now, hopefully you're getting the picture. In our day and age, Christians living, particularly in America, but other parts of the world as well. How do we handle this issue? How are we to live in this world as Christians, interacting, relating, coming into contact with the culture around you? Because 
honestly, you can't avoid it. Even if you wanted to separate yourself, you can't avoid it. And right away, Christians have to ask, how do we respond? How do we look at what's happening? And I think one helpful place to look is in church history. I think that's one of the usefulness uh, in studying church history that excites me, because there you have patterns, examples, illustrations about how other Christians in different times and different periods wrestled with similar questions, and they provide for us wonderful learning examples, both good and bad. We can learn from their mistakes, too. And church history helps us with that, gives us a test case in which we can now examine and look back. And what I want to do tonight for the rest of our time is I want to take three examples from three different periods of church history and see how these three different individuals wrestled with this issue of Christ and culture, of the sacred and of the cultural. And in their own time and in their own way, how did they handle this? How did they address this? What was their response and see if we can learn some things. And hopefully that will provide for us at least an introduction to this topic so that when you, as hopefully you will come to every lecture after this, be able then to have that as a kind of uh, historical introduction to the ways in which the other speakers will address various issues of Christ and culture in their own particular interests. Okay? I really hope this is just an introduction for you at this first lecture. But the three people that I want to look at tonight, I want to look at Augustine, John Calvin, can't give a lecture at Westminster without mentioning John Calvin somewhere in there. And Abraham Kuyper. And we want to look at all three of these individuals and see how they wrestled with this issue of Christ and culture. Let's start with St. Augustine. Let me give you Augustine's dates. Augustine's dates are 354 to 430 A.D. 354 to 430 A.D. Now let me paint a picture for you about what was happening in Europe, in North Africa, in the Middle East, in these early centuries when the church was beginning. I am convinced that it is roughly around the third end of the third century that the church, the Christian, the early Christian church, was experiencing its worst persecution. All the stories that you hear about, lions dead, being burned alive, severed, all of those things that you hear about the early Christians, how they struggled under the persecution that was mandated by the emperor at that time. That's what they were experiencing by the end of the third century. Christianity, there was an attempt to exterminate it from the Roman Empire. But the interesting response is that Christianity doesn't get exterminated. Even when the emperor tries to squish and decimate all Christians, it grows. It continues to grow in that period of time, all the way to the point where it's claimed that the Roman emperor himself, Constantine, is converted. And Christianity moves from being a persecuted religion in the Roman Empire to being a near state status, having near state status as the state religion. All of a sudden, Constantine brings in this great peace for Christians. Now, we can talk about whether that's a good or bad thing, and we'll see the, the repercussions of that move. But nevertheless, Christians felt secure for the first time. That even our emperor, even our emperor now professes Christ. Wow, the church should grow and flourish now even more. Even more we should be in safety now. Even more we can continue to worship. Even more we can influence the culture as well. And, and it did. There were a number of laws that were handed down 
now that were established that you can very well see that they had an influence on the culture. For instance, it was a common practice before that your slaves could be branded on their face. And one of the laws that was established was no, that would be outlawed. Why? Because human beings bear the image of God and should not be mutilated in that way. And so there are ways in which the, the Christian influence on the Roman Empire after the conversion of Constantine, we can see changes happening. And Christianity becomes a very well-established religion within the empire. And you can see, it's particularly in that area, is when Christians start to wrestle with some of our most basic doctrines. We see the development of a Trinitarian doctrine from the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century. We see an understanding of who Christ is as God and man from the Council of Chalcedon. And the church and the bishops become a very strong and stable institution within the Roman society. But by the time of Augustine, something changes. See, the Roman Empire is a, has stretched out from Great Britain all the way past into the far, into the Middle East. And as a result of having to rule over such a large period, or excuse me, such a large geographic area, the empire is beginning to crumble. The empire is being attacked on its borders. The Roman Empire is starting to decline by the time of Augustine himself living in North Africa. And people are witnessing this and seeing that the society that they know is rapidly changing. The Roman Empire is close to falling now. And the burning question for Christians and non-Christians is what's going to happen when the Roman Empire falls? What's going to happen? For Christians, of course, the question that's burning in their minds is what will happen to us when the empire falls? Will we be under attack again? Will we be able to continue in our churches without the protection of the empire? What's going to happen now with the weakness that they are beginning to see in the Roman Empire? Those who are non-Christians look and say, well, maybe the reason that we're weak is because of these Christians. Maybe they're the ones who made us weak. Maybe they're the reason why the Roman Empire is weak. And maybe we should go back to our pagan gods. Maybe we should go back to our pagan gods and we'll restore the glory and strength of the Roman Empire. And it's in the midst of all of this that Augustine addresses this issue. And he writes his most famous book. Well, arguably, people would consider, of course, his Confessions a very famous book. But he writes also The City of God. And in The City of God, he's attempting to address those two concerns. The concerns of those who are saying the reason why the Roman Empire is so weak today is because of you Christians and the concern of the Christians who say what will happen to us when the empire falls? How will we continue to survive without a Christian empire? What's going to happen? And so Augustine writes this magnum opus of his The City of God to address that in which he describes what you're seeing here what we're understanding and looking at here, we Christians must be careful. The first thing he does is he addresses these, Christ these concerns about Christianity being the reason the empire is falling. And what he, interesting what he does is he begins to set out what are Christian virtues? What are the good things Christians contribute to society? How they live? And he says if you compare these virtues to pagan virtues... 
the virtues that you were taught under your Roman gods, he says, they're very similar, actually. They're very similar. But, he points out, that the Christian virtues are actually better than these pagan virtues. So you can't say it's because Christianity is somehow teaching something that is morally decrepit. And that's the reason the empire is falling. No, we Christians live by virtues that are similar to the pagan virtues, but in fact better in terms of how we ought to treat one another, how we ought to love one another, how we ought to respect one another. And then Augustine turns to this other issue. And when she describes to the Christians, understand, Christian, there are two cities. There's the city of God and there's the city of man. And understand that we can look at the whole of human history as a tale of two cities. Uh, I, I, I'm smiling by saying that because I attend Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York and they're going through uh, this vision campaign about planning for the future and about looking at what New Redeemer is in New York and what Redeemer wants to continue to be in New York as a, as a Christian presence in that city. And uh, Pastor Keller is going through some of the original sermons that established the vision of Redeemer and he just preached this week about the tale of two cities and about this description of two cities that I think very much the history of that, the background of that is Augustine at this point. And what Augustine is describing are these two cities. And that when you look at all of human history, you can see that there is this city of God and there's the city of man. And the citizens of the city of God are those who are Christians, those who are believers, are part of this city of God. That's your true citizenship. That city of God, that city that is in heaven now, but that you are a part of. Nevertheless, the question for Augustine is, how do you live in the city of man on earth, yet have your citizenship in the city of God? And you see, Augustine is getting at this issue now about what happens when you're living in their context with the city of man crumbling with the Roman Empire starting to splinter. When you have put your hope in that empire to protect your Christianity, your status as the city of God, Augustine says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Understand the difference here between the city of God and the city of man. The city of God is established by God. And the city of God cannot be touched by the city of man. Yet there is this relationship of those who are citizens of this city of God, nevertheless living in the city of man. Well, how does, it, how, does it, how does it play out, Augustine? How do you understand this relationship? Augustine begins by this first response. Those who are part of the city of God, what is your ultimate purpose? You who are Christians, you who form the church of Jesus Christ, what is your ultimate purpose? Augustine says it's worship. It's for you to be able to worship God because God commands it, because God calls you to worship. And for you also to call others to worship, right? To evangelize and tell others to come and worship the true and living God. That is what those who are citizens in the city of God are called to do, to worship God. 
and to invite others to worship God. But Augustine says, well, how is that possible when you're in the city of man? How is that possible on earth, worship? How do you continue that? And his principle is this. You have to have peace, right? You have to have a society of peace in order for worship to go forth. You have to have peace. Okay, Augustine. We need to have peace so that the church can establish itself. Augustine, we just had peace. Under Constantine, did he not give us that peace? And now without Constantine, that's what we're worried about. We're worried about not having that peace and not being able to worship. Augustine says this, Peace cannot be accomplished without justice. You have to have the two together for Augustine. You have to have peace and justice. Justice is that which accomplishes peace. Right? Because in a society, obviously, if you're pursuing peace, there are some people who aren't going to buy into that. Some people who are not going to promote peace. And then you have to demonstrate justice at that point. So you have to have justice along with peace. But Augustine, who decides what is just? Who decides what justice is? When you're living in the city of man, who decides that? Augustine says, well, we know what true justice is. True justice is God's just. What God says is just. That is what is true justice. It is what God says is just. And he says for Christians, you, each one of you knows what true justice is. You who follow God, you who serve the true and living God, you know what true justice is. And your responsibility is to teach others what that true justice is. Your responsibility is to teach those in the city of man what true justice is. And if you work for that, if you promote that, if you advocate for that, they will learn. And you can have a city that has justice and peace and worship can go forth. See what Augustine's doing there. The interesting thing about Augustine at this point, he's not saying, he's not saying that you absolutely have to have a Christian ruler, a Christian emperor. No. Instead, Augustine is actually saying what you really need is a just ruler, one who is just, because justice and peace go hand in hand. And he even has an interesting, interesting statement where he says, I'd rather have a just ruler than a Christian ruler. Meaning that, yeah, you could have a Christian ruler who might not be just, right? And he'd rather have someone who is just. Because the purpose of the state, if we can say it the way Augustine would, is to simply promote peace through justice. And if you have that context... Worship can go forth. The church can do its job. You as Christians can worship and call others to worship. And so for the Christian then, in that century, Augustine is saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't 
be so discouraged just because the empire is falling, just because we no longer, we may no longer have, may not have any longer a Christian emperor. We must continue. We must continue to work towards justice. And that justice promoting peace and having rulers that are just. And that will provide the context in which worship can continue, in which the church can survive, in which the church can go forth. Now, the interesting thing about this is, for Augustine in his context, addressing this issue in this particular way, a couple things to observe. He distinguishes very carefully worship and the church from the state. See, those lines were getting blurred under Constantine. Constantine himself, as a civil ruler, right? He's not an officer of the church. Nevertheless, was weighing in on theological decisions. When councils met, he, his opinion meant a lot. His influence was felt as the emperor. But he's not a pastor. He's not an elder in the church. There was a lot of kind of merging going on between how the church functioned and how the state functioned. And I think Augustine is pointing out very carefully, wait, there's a difference here. There's a difference. And you don't necessarily have to have a Christian emperor for the church to survive, for the church to continue. Now, the one thing that Augustine, I think, slightly misses in all of this is that even if you have an emperor or a ruler who's not just and attacks the church, the church will still survive. We have evidence of that in history over and over again. That every time a government is set on exterminating Christianity, the exact opposite happens. The exact opposite. And here's where I think, though, Augustine is right, because it's the city of God. It's established by God. It's not part of the city of man. And even under persecution, it will continue to multiply and grow. So we as Christians, though, nevertheless, still should continue, should continue, according to Augustine, to pursue justice. That's the point in order to have peace, in order for the church to grow. And this is really interesting, especially when we think about various contexts today, right? If you were living in a Muslim country today, in which Christianity is in fact persecuted, how do you respond there at that point? How do you seek justice there? If you're in communist China, how do you seek justice there as an individual citizen? How do you see this relationship? I think Augustine now provides us a certain pattern to look at in terms of how the church is supposed to function and how you understand the relationship, particularly in his time, when people are so worried, so worried. Think about America today, right? There is a lot of assumptions out there, I think, that America is, and some of you heard my talk before, uh, some sort of Christian nation. And people are very worried today with the moral decline and all the things that are going on today that we're getting away from our Christian roots. What's going to happen to America now? Just look at the last presidential election. People voted much more on moral issues in that election than any other issues. And people looking at that, seeing that, wow, what happens if America 
does move away from a kind of Judeo-Christian ethic, how will the church respond at that point? Well, Christians here become discouraged and depressed that somehow, oh no, we need to go back and retake Washington in a Christian way. Or do we continue to promote justice here, as Augustine would urge us, for peace, for the purposes of peace, and that being the primary emphasis of the government, not making everyone a Christian. Interesting. Let's, let's move on, though. See, when the Roman Empire does fall, and Europe becomes segmented all the way through, no longer under one rule, no longer under one emperor, now you have various kings and princes emerging in different territories with Europe, the king of France, the king of Britain, in Austria and in Germany, all in Spain, all of these different regions that were formerly part of the Roman Empire throughout the medieval period and onto the Reformation began to shrub their borders, territories, nations now. And the interesting thing, the fear that these Christians were concerned about under Augustine really isn't, isn't an issue anymore. Why? Because Christianity survives. It survives the fall of the Roman Empire and continues to establish itself in these various locations now, according to these various new kings and rulers of different territories in Europe. And what emerges from that is not what Augustine hoped for, understanding, well, the church has a responsibility and the state has a responsibility and how they interact together. But instead, what emerges is what political historians call rule by divine right or absolutism. All of these kings, queens, and princes will rule their territories. No votes. No consultations with the people. Divine right. Absolute monarchy. Why? Because many of them were under the assumption and impression that God had appointed them. That God had appointed them to be king of France, that God had appointed them to be king of Britain, that God had appointed them to be the Holy Roman Emperor. Those positions were said to be held by divine right. God gave me that right, and I rule now absolutely. And when the Reformation hits Europe, splinters Europe in half, it becomes very much the case the ruler's religion will be the people's religion. No choice. If the king or the prince in that region decides, hey, I'm going to go to Protestantism. I'm going to leave the Roman Catholic Church. That whole territory doesn't matter. He doesn't go around and say, convert each and every individual. That is it. The whole country is going to follow the religion of the ruler. If he wants to stay Roman Catholic, sometimes they go back and forth. In the whole country, and you can see, you can imagine the confusion of people in the pews there, right? If you're sitting in one of the local churches, and one Sunday your king now has moved over to the Reformation, strips down all the icons and the altars and things within the church, next thing you know, a Roman Catholic king comes and conquers your land, and everything comes back up, and the priest is back in there. Back and forth, back and forth. What's happening here? And the kings decide then who will be, or what will be the religion of their territory. Not the church itself, but the king. The king will decide. 
The classic example, of course, is England's Reformation. Right? Why, why did they have a Reformation in England? Yes, there were ministers who were beginning to read the reformed works of Luther and others, but it really was King Henry's decision and his desire to have a male heir and wanting a divorce from his wife that was not granted by the Pope, and he decides, well, if that's the case, I'm going to be a Protestant, and sets himself up as head over church and state. So Europe, post-Augustine, through the medieval period, through the Reformation period now, is ruled in such a way in which kings, queens, princes, believed that they were appointed by God. And it wasn't just them, you see. The people did, too. They were obedient to their monarchs because they also believed that they were appointed by God. That God so ordered the world in such a way to give them kings, and these kings were chosen by God, and they must be obeyed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, there were great consequences, too, if you didn't in that period of time. But when the Reformation hits, all of a sudden you have individuals saying, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. The church is not teaching the pure gospel. The king who endorses that church also is not teaching and promoting the pure gospel. What do we do at that point? What do we do? But wait a minute. They're divinely appointed. God appointed them. How can they be wrong? How can they have erred if God chose them? Did God make a mistake? And it's very interesting to see Reformation theologians begin to wrestle with this issue of how they are to view, once again, cultural issues like princes and kings in relation to the church, in relation to the people of God. And it's interesting to see at this point that John Calvin begins to write about this as well. And you can see his debt to Augustine. You know, Augustine sets up city of God, city of man. Calvin takes the same concept, uses slightly different vocabulary, and instead talks about two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms. There's this earthly kingdom that we find ourselves in, and then there's this heavenly kingdom that we're a part of. And he distinguishes them sharply that the heavenly kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, is the kingdom in which true believers are citizens. And that heavenly kingdom now, that heavenly kingdom is uh, lived out in the church because the gifts of the heavenly kingdom are there. The word of God. The word of God that you hear preached Sunday after Sunday. The sacraments when you come either for baptism or for the Lord's Supper, these are things of that heavenly kingdom. But of course, Calvin has to wrestle also. But we live in this earthly kingdom. We still live in this earthly kingdom. How do we understand this? And Calvin has a number of things he has to deal with that Augustine did not. The first thing he has to wrestle with is this issue of what happens when you believe your monarch is an error, that your monarch has, in fact, abandoned truth, particularly gospel truth. What happens then? What do you do 
in the context of Europe in the 16th century when everyone assumes that kings and princes and queens are divinely appointed. How do you handle that? Calvin develops a resistance understanding where Calvin says what is happening in this divine appointment is that kings and monarchs are in covenant with God. That yes, God has appointed them, but God is in a covenant with them, a contract with them, in which they are told to upkeep certain things as a condition of their monarchy. And if they don't, then we as subjects have a right to resist, Calvin says. So if a king has abandoned and the king is following, particularly Roman Catholicism at that time, that is not the pure gospel. And you people who are living in that territory, Calvin argues you have a right to resist because that monarch has broken covenant with God. That monarch has broken his contract with God. And therefore, you as citizens have a right to resist. A right to resist. Understand, this is a very, very new, interesting concept injected into European political thought that, in my opinion, never was before and really changes the landscape of Europe. Absolutely changes the landscape. You remember what happened to Luther? When Luther began to preach his message, right? Reformation, reformation, reformation. And all of a sudden, you get these peasants who catch on to his reformation message. Now, whether they're, whether they're understanding the gospel of it or not, they decide this is an opportunity to revolt. This is an opportunity to demonstrate that we're tired of the hierarchy of the medieval society and that we're going to revolt against our kings now. And we're going to call ourselves reformers like Luther. And Luther actually urges the princes of Germany to crush that rebellion. Crush those peasants. Because even in Luther's mind, you can't do that. You cannot be anarchists like that. God has ordered our society in a certain way and has appointed these princes to rule over you. And of course, Luther's project is always to point at these princes and say, you princes must understand the true gospel. You must bring your whole countries and territories into the Reformation. Luther, resistance? No, he told those princes to crush resistance. Calvin, interesting enough, says no. There actually is, in fact, a proper time when one can resist. Note by the end of the 1640s, when England will go through its civil war over issues of purity within the church and other things as well, that at the end of that civil war, Charles I, King of England, is beheaded, executed. That is astounding in that time and in that period. For people to actually rise up and at the very end kill their monarch in Europe in that time, that's unheard of. They're divinely appointed. You can't touch them like that. Where does that come from now? at the end of Britain's bloody civil war that they will in fact execute their monarch. Because many said, Charles, what you're doing is you're leading us back to Rome. The practices that you're introducing back into the church, the teachings that you're 
putting back into the church. That is not a Protestant church. You're bringing us back toward a Roman Catholic church. You've broken covenant with God. We have a right to resist, and that's what they do, all the way to the point of executing their king. Unheard of before in European mind. So Calvin starts to talk about this in this kind of relationship now. But the interesting thing about Calvin is in his own context there, he also does things that seem confusing. The two kingdoms concept that he establishes and he writes about in his theological writings doesn't always come out. In the 16th century, John Calvin, who lives in the town of Geneva, Switzerland, and is entrusted with bringing the Reformation to not just the church, but to the city. And it's really fascinating to look because the city itself is structuring itself around the church now around the church. There are certain laws that come into place within Geneva that are very much influenced by the theology of Calvin and the other pastors there. And you wonder, wait a minute, what's going on with these two kingdoms? Something very strange is happening here. Something very, let me give you some examples of what's happening in Geneva. One example, for instance, there was a law established that you could name, there are certain names that you could not name your children in Geneva. Now, secular historians look at that and think, well, obviously what is going on is Calvin is this power-hungry, authoritarian egomaniac who's putting down all these laws and telling people that they can't name their children certain names. Wow, what an egomaniac. This guy Calvin must have been. But Calvin explains that what he's trying to do, of course, is to try to move this city away from Roman Catholicism toward Protestantism. And one of the earlier practices was to name your children after Roman Catholic saints. And so the names that were outlawed were names of Roman Catholic saints that they wanted to teach the people that when you baptize your children and you name them, don't give them Roman Catholic names. It was a way in which he was trying to teach people what it meant to be Protestant, how to act like a Protestant. But wait a minute, it wasn't the church. Well, it was the church and when the church would have endorsed it, but it was also a law of the city. A law of the city. Interesting. Interesting. And then there is also that famous case that Calvin is always well known for when a guy named Michael Servita showed up in Geneva and begin to teach some strange things like denying the Trinity. And Calvin actually prosecuted him, brought charges up against him as being a heretic. And eventually he was tried, handed over to the civil authorities, and burned at the stake. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. In our churches, someone Someone teaches something strange or funny. You, you discipline them at most. You excommunicate them from the church. You don't burn them. You don't turn them over to the government, call the police up and say, come over here and take this guy away to jail, right? We don't do that. Wait a minute. What's going on in Calvin's Geneva? And I point those out as just examples in which I think, actually, the context of the 16th century was very different. Very different than Augustine's context. Very different than our context today. Because Calvin was dealing with the situation in Europe, obviously, where there are no secular people, for one. Who in Geneva would have been a non-Christian? 
who in Geneva would not have been a member of the church? Nobody. Everybody was in Europe at the time. And this understanding of the monarch, too, and rulers within the society as being covenanted to God very much influences the decisions that are made in an area in which the church and the state seem to be sharing authority, sharing duties, and bringing about certain laws or certain actions there. And so what you see in Calvin is, yes, he wants to maintain this two kingdoms understanding, but within the church, sometimes there's a merger going on in the way the church functions within the society. And some people use that as an example and say, well, there you go. We should all be like Calvin. We should all try to turn America, particularly, into a Christian nation like Geneva was and start to lay down laws that are Christian, that outlaw things that are non-Christian. And some say, well, isn't that what, that's what Calvin did. We should do that too. On that point, I would say, as much respect as I have for John Calvin, I don't think so. I do not, I will fall back to Augustine where he kept those things more separate than what Calvin's doing. Now, I please understand, what I'm describing about Calvin, Calvin, for all of his theological greatness, nevertheless is a sinner, depraved like you and I, and a man of his context, working in a society, working in a period of history, living in that city, which was very, very different than what we see in Augustine's time and very, very different than what we see today as well. So it's very difficult when I hear arguments about, oh, but Calvin t did this and Calvin did that and we should do that also. No, we're not living in the 16th century. <laughs> it's very different today. It's very, very different. So we want to be careful of that. But I, I, I bring up Calvin to let you see how a one has wrestled with this issue in his own time, in his own context, and tried to address some of the similar concerns. Let's talk about our last individual here, our last example. And here I'm pointing, I want to bring up Abraham Kuyper, 1837 to 1920. So someone much more closer to our day and age, 1837 to 1920. Uh, former prime minister of the Netherlands, a professing Christian, professing reformed Christian, who brought about both a, a movement of conservative churches within the Netherlands, breaking and forming their own denomination and even forming their own university, the Free University of Amsterdam. Yet at the same time, someone who was very actively involved, particularly on the political side of the Netherlands. He was elected prime minister of the Netherlands. So you've got someone here who is experienced politically in the society of the Netherlands, nevertheless also a theologian, an active minister within the church as well. Abraham Kuyper. And how did Kuyper address this issue in his own day and time? It's very interesting. Uh, the, in the advertisement for tonight's lecture, I listed a book by Abraham Kuyper as a suggested reading for you. That is the... Uh, Kuyper's Lectures on Calvinism, which were lectures that he gave at Princeton Theological Seminary October 10 through 12, 1898. It's the Stone Lecture Series at Princeton. He was invited to come and give those lectures. And in those lectures, what
Kuiper sets out then is to describe what he calls Calvinism. And he gives it a robust and broad definition. He's not talking about just the five points of Calvinism. He's not talking about just Tulip. When he says Calvinism, he's talking about a worldview, a life view. Calvinism as a way of looking at the world around, a way of interacting with the world around, a way for Christians to respond to every single walk of life. That's what he's describing there. Calvinism, he says, is the best way a Christian then can respond. It's not just the five points of Calvinism, but it encompasses much more for him. It is a unique world system in which Christians are to seek the glory of God. And how do you do that? Well, you do that, according to Kuiper, by understanding that God has erected various institutions in the world. There are various parts of the world that you interact with, and he describes those things as various spheres. There's the church. There's the state. There's the family. These are different spheres for Kuiper. And Kuiper describes then, well, how do you as a Christian, particularly in his own context and describing his own response, how do you as a Calvinist, he says, interact with all of these spheres of life. Kuiper builds everything on a theological concept of what he calls common grace. Okay? Common grace. Let me just read you a quote from Kuiper. Common grace, by which God, maintaining the life of the world, relaxes the curse which rests upon it, arrests its process of corruption, and thus allows the untrammeled development of our life in which to glorify himself as creator, Thus the church receded in order to be neither more nor less than the congregation of believers. And in every department, the life of the world was not emancipated from God, but from the dominion of the church. What's Kuiper talking about there? Kuiper is saying, after the fall, after Adam had fallen, after sin had entered into the world, God had established something called common grace. And common grace was a way in which God could now, if we can describe it this way, hold back the pervasiveness of sin. Sin is so corrupting. Sin is so evil. Sin is just so infectious that once it entered into the world, if it was left to just everyone go about the way they would want to, sinfulness would just break down societies, break down families, break down culture until... You just have complete anarchy. And Kuiper says that God places common grace here as a way to suppress or hold back those effects of sin. And in so doing, there are actually advancements that can be made in the world. Yes, a broken world, but still advancements. Things like art, things like science, all of these things, developments, explorations can happen even though we're in a sinful world because of God's common grace. Now, in that common grace, though, he also talks about the church then as being living in this era of common grace for a particular purpose, for a particular calling, and that's it. Okay? And that's it. See, what's behind Kuiper's mind is this. 
in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are established there as the first parents. They are supposed to be. They're told, right? Fill and multiply, fill and multiply. And had Adam not sinned, culture, society, cities, families would have come from Adam and Eve and would have been living in that Edenic situation. Now in that Edenic situation, there's not this sacred cultural separation. Everything is to the glory of God and everything you do is worship. I remember I started out with saying the sacred is for worship. In the pre-fall state, everything would have been for worship. There's no separation. All would be involved in worship, and everything we would do would be worship to God in that way, without sin. See? But because of the fall now, a separation has happened. You have rebellious people who will not worship. But then you have faithful covenant people as well who do worship. And God says, common grace, according to Kuiper, in which the church and those people who will worship and be in covenant with God will be in that sphere. And common grace, though, holds back sinfulness so that there are still other areas of human life, even though sinful, nevertheless, we see scientific development, we see artistic development, we see all of these things flourishing in one sense in the world still. Kuiper goes on to describe... Quote, thus domestic life regained its independence. Trade and commerce realized their strength and liberty, art and science. These were set free from every ecclesiastical bond, restored to their own inspirations, and man began to understand the subjection of all nature with its hidden forces and treasures to himself as a holy duty. Imposed upon him by the original ordinance of paradise, have dominion over them. Henceforth the curse should no longer rest upon the world itself, but upon that which is sinful in it. And instead of a monastic flight from the world, the duty is now emphasized of serving God in the world in every position in life. Kuiper is saying, we as Christians now, in this world, because common grace then restrains sinfulness to a certain extent, we can participate. We can be involved in all these different aspects of life. Church has its place. But we as Christians should be involved involved in politics, involved in science, involved in art, all of those things. Why, Kuiper says, for you as Christians, to the glory of God, you do all these things. You do all these things for the glory of God. You are part of building that for the glory of God. The church has its place, though. The church has its place for worship. The church has its place there to continue to call people to worship. But Kuiper says that Calvinism, Calvinism also calls you to be involved in other aspects of life and of the world. You as Christians should be a part of it. You as Christians should be advancing those things as well. But he keeps this distinction. He keeps this distinction between what the church is doing and what or how Christians should interact in the world around. So he's very much not this kind of retreatist, go away, pull away but he's very much a part of the activity and being involved and doing it for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Now, but Kuiper, how does that, how does that manifest itself? How do you see that functioning there? 
Kuiper says it is because when you look at how God sovereignly has ordered the world and how sovereignly through his common grace he has restrained sin in certain areas, you can see that God has established certain institutions. He's established the state for its purposes. He's established the church for the purposes of the church. He's established the family for its purposes. And all those things, he's not saying they're just kind of natural things that develop or they're just kind of uh, accidents that happen that are good. No, these things are established by God for the purposes, if I can use the language of Augustine, for people who are in the city of God to live in the city of man and to be a part of that city and how to interact in that city and how to continue to work as Christians. But the sphere of the church and the sphere of the state in particular, Kuiper keeps those things distinct. There are certain things that the church is supposed to do and the state is not. There are certain things that the state is supposed to do and the church is not. And at that point, Kuiper is actually very critical of what Calvin did. Even though he calls himself a Calvinist, on that issue particularly, Kuiper says, no, 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 no. The state, again, is to establish peace so that that injustice, that is its responsibility. Its responsibility is not to advocate for Christianity, for Christianity to be a state religion. Instead, the church's job is to expand with the gospel and to bring the gospel and to call people to worship. And Kuiper keeps those things very distinct in his development of this interaction of Christians living in the world. Now, when we see that and we think about that now, as we talk about Christ and culture, I think that we have to avoid those extremes. We have to avoid the extremes that say, run away, run away from culture, it's all evil, it's all bad, hide away someplace in a Christian subculture. And we want to go, we want to be careful of the other extreme about describing, no, no, we need to conquer, we need to make sure everything, the state endorses Christianity and has all Christian laws and all of those things. We have to avoid those extremes. And I think the lessons we're learning here from Augustine, from Calvin, and from Kuiper is to try to keep that balance of understanding that as we are citizens of the heavenly city, citizens of God, yet at the same time living in this world here, that we are to understand the job of the church and then understand our job and our role as citizens of the city of God, living in the city of man and urging people to live in a just way, urging people to live in a peaceful way. Now, we know what true justice is. We know what true peace looks like because God teaches us that. God gives us that. And Christians in the world are hard to continue to work for that individually. And I would argue, through our work in the church, evangelism goes hand in hand with that, too. And so as we approach these issues of, of Christ and culture, and as you look at them in the next couple weeks and all that, hopefully you'll remember a little bit of Augustine, a little bit of Calvin, a little bit of Kuiper, to kind of give you some orientation then on how others had dealt with this issue and how others had addressed it in the past. I'm going to stop here, and, and I think we were to move into a question-answer time. The question is, uh, how, how do we as Christians, I, 
and I'll paraphrase it and tell me if I'm not getting it right, how we as Christians continue to be involved, particularly in the political process, when funding and other avenues that Christians have used in the past seem to be shut down now or seem to be dismissed or closing in some way or form. I think, I think this, is the, this is the issue then, particularly in America, on how we understand this relationship. Is it the case, if it is the case, that our government is to protect the freedom of religion? And that means neither persecuting nor privileging any religion, then Christianity in principle would have an equal voice or an opportunity at the very least to express itself in the public square with anybody else. And I think you're right. In some circles, people would say, well, actually, Christianity is the one religion that's being marginalized. Everybody else is willing to say, well, yes, let's give the Buddhists and the Islam Islamic and all these other religious groups a voice, but Christianity is the one that we're starting to marginalize. And I think, every, I think at that point, Christian organizations, in the sense of those who are advocating for certain principles within the government, when I say Christian organizations, I don't mean the church itself. I mean, Christians who see that there are important issues that need to be addressed share a like mind in that. There are ways of bringing that about still within the system. Now, it might be that you have to seek private funding for it. You might not have that funding from the government. Nevertheless, and maybe I'm being just a little too optimistic here, but nevertheless, there is opportunity to voice, even at the base level, of how you vote, how each individual votes on whatever issue, whatever's on the ballot. At the same time, I think there is this part of uh, Christian understanding, if I want to call it that, but there is something in America today, I think, that, still, that does recognize moral issues are still very important. It's not a free-for-all. It's not what every man chooses, every woman chooses of their own. There are moral issues that people do see very clearly and I think the last election demonstrates that, that, that what you see is that the moral issues are still very, very important, very, very important in people's minds. And so I don't think necessarily that, that all the avenues are shut down for Christians who see it as very important to be actively involved in the political process. Now, I'm not as familiar with all the different things that are going on you know, in terms of advocacy groups and things like that. And I'm sure someone could very well be saying, well, you know, I work for this advocacy group and we have actually experienced mild forms of persecution and, and things like that. And I'm sure those things exist as well. But I still think that there is room for a voice to be expressed even in the situation that we are here in America today. Yeah. I, I, the question is, uh, in dealing with political issues, how explicit should we be about our Christian principles or motivations when it could very well alienate those who share the same political stance but not the same Christian motivation or Christian uh, principles in that way. And I think at, at that point, we've seen examples of that already. Um, a, an electrifying example that happened, it's got to be now 10 years ago, with the signing of an agreement between Protestants and Roman Catholics in this Evangelical Catholics Together document, in which I think primarily was for the purpose of addressing moral issues in America that both Roman Catholics and Protestants agree upon there, anti-abortion in particular. And that. But of course, it got very, very uh, 
controversial because there were theological statements written in there as well about no longer recognizing certain differences between Roman Catholic and Protestant theology, which upset a lot of people. So I, I, I think that we do very much have to say that when we approach anything in life, whether it's politics or anything else, it's obviously from our Christian principles. It's obviously because we believe that's what the Word of God says and teaches, and we, we act accordingly to that. Now, how explicit should we be, especially considering that many would say, well, the reason you're advocating for that, oh, well, it's the Bible, right? Yes, it is the Bible. Well, I don't believe the Bible. So aren't, aren't you violating my rights by imposing biblical standards upon me? And I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't follow that. And this is where I think Kuiper steps in and says, one thing we as Christians recognize is that everything's under the sovereignty of God. All these different spheres that we're looking at, God set this up. It is God's common grace order that allows these things to establish. And so whether we're talking about those things which are exclusively to the church, which we say, yeah, the Bible tells us to come and worship. The Bible tells us to come and be baptized. The Bible tells us how to live, too, in the, other, in the world that is under his common grace as well. We're not to live any, any other way. Now, how then do we function, particularly about certain issues that... Those who aren't explicitly Christian would support that. I think there's room for dialogue there. I think, personally, I think there's room to say, understand that this is the issue. We can agree on this issue, but understand also how I got to this issue. And it might not be the same way you did, but if we can look at this issue and agree upon this issue, we can at least accomplish something there in a unified voice or a unified response. I don't think it's necessarily the case that in the secular political world we are only to bind together with like-minded Christians. Now that's the church, right? The churches that we belong in define itself by our theological positions. But in the secular world, in the city of man, in the political arena as well, there's a lot of common ground that can be worked on together from people of different faiths Yet at the same time, I don't feel the need to necessarily hide my faith or to apologize for my faith, but to simply state we have a common moral issue here, even though the reason you come to it and the reason I come to it could be very different at that point. Because at that point, the state's job is not to say, again, we want Christian laws, we want just laws. But all just laws, truly just laws, will be consistent with the Christian principles of justice. See? That's the best I, I can make of that. Yeah. Other, yeah. Uh, the question is, how did, how did Augustine, for instance, or Calvin's ideas or, or Kuiper's continue within the church or get passed, passed on and change, and change? Yeah. I think the, the key thing about looking at church history is that, one, there's continuity. Calvin is familiar with Augustine's writings. Absolutely. Kuiper knows Calvin and Augustine as well. So the continuity in the fact that these men are, are reading each other, you know, those coming after, and learning from those examples, but that which really shapes different ideas, in my opinion, is, is the context, is the fact that they're in a different time and a different period. Similar questions may be posed, but they're asked differently because the times have changed and the context has changed. Go ahead. Is that how these new ideas uh, 
were accepted in the church because the context or the cultural... Oftentimes that is the case, that, that new questions will be asked during different periods of history, and the church addresses these new questions, and in that response sees both continuity with the past, correction of the past, because the past isn't always right, and proper application to the pressing needs and questions of that particular day. And I think that, again, if you're hearing it from a church historian, of course, is, is I think, the wonderful need and example and, and reason to study church history because you can see that continuity, that development, and then how it gets applied in our own day. Other, other questions? The, que- the question is, uh, why is it that there's this difference between Calvin and Kuiper, and yet at the same time Kuiper is talking about that this is Calvinism, for instance? That, yeah. On the particular issue of the church and state relationship, Kuiper is absolutely critical of Calvin on that, about what happened in Geneva. But nevertheless, he sees Calvin's theology in a way that is encouraging believers to address these various issues of culture from their Christianity. And he says that that's, that's authentic Calvinism. Calvinism gives you that lens to look at all these things. And if you look at Calvin in his other writings, you see that lens in its kind of early form. Because Calvin talks about, look, for instance, he says, look, just because you're not a minister, just because you haven't devoted your life to full-time ministry as a minister, doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't important to God. That doesn't mean that your occupation is not a calling in and of itself, too. Recognize that, because a lot of people thought, hey, you know, there's, there's going into ministry, and being a minister is somehow more special, somehow more specific in a, in a holy calling, because particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, to be ordained is a sacrament, even, that you get this extra blessing by God once you join the church as an ordained minister. Calvin says no. Calvin says you live your life to the glory of God. If you are a carpenter, be a carpenter to the glory of God, the best you could be. If you're a cook, cook to the glory of God the best you can be. Those are your callings. Those are just as worthy of an occupational calling. So you can see he's taking this Christian view, and, and now Kuiper's saying, yeah, everything we do. And he says that's Calvinism, because Calvin introduced some of these ideas. Now expand it to all of the different aspects of life that a 19th, 20th century person like Kuiper would have experienced, would have interacted with. Yeah. So on another hand here. The question is, looking at Constantine's time period and Constantine's conversion and the empire becoming much more Christian, are there similarities or what can we learn from that in terms of our modern context, specifically with an issue like abortion? Um, I don't quite exactly see Constantine's period historically uh, equivalent with our period, uh, in one sense because the state under Constantine was much more interested in, much more influencing what's happening in the church. Absolutely, there's no question that Constantine is the one who calls the council that defines the Trinity for the church. Constantine is very much involved on things that are church-related, even though he holds a secular office. He's not a minister in the church. Um, So looking at issues like abortion today, 
I think, absolutely, I think abortion is wrong. And I think that Christians ought to advocate, work for legislature in that way. Now, it's a more complicated issue because, you know, beneath all of that is the question of, it's much more than a, a question of politics, but more of a question of how do you view life, right? How do you, how do you understand how life begins and what is life and whether, whether it's a living being or whether it's just part of the mother or all of those kind of issues come in underneath. But nevertheless, as Christians, I think, you know, for them to say, well, you know, that's just your opinion as a Christian and you're trying to force your opinion on, on us. No, we are advocating something, arguing for something through proper channels. Now, I'm, I am not saying, I do not think it is a proper channel to go out and set bombs to uh, clinics, abortion clinics like that. You heard it from me, okay, I admit, that's not that's something that I, I think, no, I don't think that's the way Christians ought to act, because that's not, that's not peaceful. That's not promoting peace in that way from a true justice position. The way to go through is through the legislature that's established to write our congressmen, to be involved in uh, votes and in those political uh, venues that are just, that are according to how our political system operates and functions. That. And I think on that issue, sure, I can band with people who are anti-abortion who are not, you know, Presbyterians, let's say, <laughs> that, and still be able to say, but on this issue we agree in this, as Kuiper would describe, sphere of politics. But, you know, if we're in the church, that's a different matter. And then the matters of theology become more important. You know, I cannot say, if I was a pastor at a church, and someone says, I want to join your church, and I say, well, you know, are you a Christian? Oh, no, I'm actually a, a Buddhist. But I believe in abortion. I, I'm against abortion. That doesn't qualify you in membership within a Christian church. See, that's a crude example of what I'm talking about in terms of differences between what the church is supposed to do and how we function within a political sphere. Other questions? You would hope that. See, the, the question is, is it, is it the case that because of the Constantine's conversion that you have Christian influence coming in, and it's because not only that he's a just leader, but that because he's also a Christian leader? Well, you would hope for that. You would hope that if that leader is a true Christian and seeking true justice, yeah, it ought to promote a peace for everyone, though. And that, and, and that person sitting in that office ought not to be sitting in that office saying, yes, I'm promoting justice because I know or, or I'm learning what justice is from God, and on top of that, I want everyone to be Christians, and therefore I'm going to start putting laws in that says everyone has to be a Christian. No, 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 no. That's not, you're, you're being informed by justice principles, and yes, you're a Christian, so you probably have a better understanding and commitment to that, which could bring about more things. And so, you know, when I've, had, I've had a lot of college kids that I speak to in different uh, venues always say, you know, I'm interested in a career in politics, but people tell me I can't be a Christian and, be a, and go into politics. Is it wrong? Is it sinful? No. Because if you actually do end up in office, you can do a lot because you understand true godly principles, true biblical principles. But the interesting thing about Constantine, you know, people say, look at that. Isn't it a wonderful example of what a Christian can do? But it's interesting also 
that as soon as Constantine becomes emperor, Christianity goes from being persecuted actually to being the persecutor at that point. If you don't sign up to certain theological doctrines, you'll be killed under Constantine also. Now, all of a sudden, this idea of peace and justice falls into the church too. And that justice is being carried out by capital punishment in the church as well. To the point where the, the empire at one point is fractured between those who support Arius and want to say that Jesus Christ was not God and those who support a more Nicene and Chalcedonian definition that says no, Jesus is both God and man. And it fractures the empire over a theological issue as well. And they're killing each other over this now. So you can see, you know, even though we can say, yeah, there's a piece that comes in that influences the culture, nevertheless, Christianity also starts to form in some, and I, can, I, I believe it's rightly to describe, some very ungodly ways when you're killing people, Christians, over differences of opinions and belief. Well, that, that comes in to, under Constantine, too. Some people argue that with the conversion of Constantine, you do not simply have a Christian ruler who's being just, but actually it's moving to a Christian empire that is mandating Christianity now in such a way that I think Augustine probably would not have been as comfortable with.